Well, I have known our guest teacher for 25 years, such a dear friend and dear brother, but more than that to all of us, he is the chairman of our deacons. He and the men and women that sit on the deacons do an enormous service to the fellowship here in meeting the material needs of people and coming alongside them during times of hardship. And John and I, our families raised our kids together and homeschooled them together and He's been married for 39 years. He's got seven children, three grandchildren. John, come on out. And John has served in the Air Force for 25 years, and he retired as a colonel. And he's now back serving the Air Force as a contractor. And we're just so delighted to have him speak to us today. We're not going to interrupt you this service. So sorry to have to do it. God willing. Thanks, brother. (laughs) God bless you. I want to thank Bruce for giving me the opportunity to speak. Uh, Yes, my name is John Smith. That is the truth. Like Bruce said, I've uh, served in the military. I was there for 25 years. Uh, I was a pilot. Actually, for uh, a portion of my career, I was an instructor pilot. I was teaching young officers how to fly. At the base where we were at, uh, sometimes the instructor pilots would take Uh, the doctors on the base called flight docs, and we'd give them a ride in the airplane so they could orientate themselves to uh, what the pilots are doing. Well, one day, I was taking a flight doc on this uh, uh, ride in the airplane. We were actually taking a cross-country trip, going from our base in Oklahoma, flying to a base in Colorado, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. And we were flying in this airplane right here. It's a T-37 It's a two-seat, twin-engine jet aircraft, highly acrobatic, but with only basic navigational equipment on board. As we were flying across toward Colorado, about two-thirds of the way across, I saw a thunderstorm pop up, as so often does in that part of uh, the country on a hot summer day. And so I got on the radio and I asked the controller, hey, can we have a vector uh, around the thunderstorm? And he said, sure, fly 270, because it's never a wise idea to fly through a thunderstorm, especially in a small aircraft like this. So sometime later, <clears throat> I could see the skies darkening up and lightning going from cloud to cloud. And I got on the radio again, and I said to the controller, um, looks like there's another thunderstorm up ahead. Can you give us a vector? And he said... We have a line of thunderstorms up and down the rampart range. And uh, do you have radar capability on board? And I said, um, no, I don't. You see, if I had radar capability on board, I could plot the radar on my screen and kind of navigate my way around the worst of it. At that point in time, I realized I didn't have enough gas to turn around and go back. And there was not enough, um, there there was no alternate landing location between, suitable for my aircraft, between where I was at and our destination. I said, no, I don't. Can you just give me your best vector? Well, he did, and um, here I am, we made it. Um, But for quite some period of time, I I was pretty nervous. Have you ever been flying at night in bad weather and said, I sure hope the pilot knows what he's doing? Or, I wish we were back down on the ground? Or have you been driving uh, 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 in a nasty thunderstorm and had to turn the windshield wipers on so uh, full blast so you could see where you were going? 
Or maybe you decided that you'd pull underneath the overpass and say, I'll just wait here till it goes by. Or maybe you just said, I, I wish we were back at home where it's safe and sound. Well, the disciples encountered a couple of storms. One of them is uh, recorded in Matthew 14. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Verse 21. Right after Jesus had finished feeding the 5,000 plus, we read, And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Let me pray. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to your word. And your word to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go back a little bit earlier and set the scene for what we just read. A little earlier in chapter 14, Jesus learns that his friend John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. Wanting to be alone, he got into a boat and went out onto the water. I assume he was mourning and praying. And people were following him along the shore as he's out on the water. And when he finally came ashore, there's a number of people there. He felt compassion for them and was healing their sick. He spent the day doing that, and toward the end of the day, he wanted to feed them, and now there's a number of people there. There's 5,000 plus men, women, and children there, and he fed them from five loaves and two fish. And then he told his disciples, y'all get into the boat, go to the other side, see a galley, I'll catch up with you. In the meantime, I'm going to dismiss the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, what did he do? He went up on the mountain. To do what? To pray. Let's take a look at verse 23 again. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. The word for evening indicates that it was about 6 p.m. when Jesus was up on the mountain alone praying. Let's skip down to verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So we know that Jesus was up on the mountain at 6 p.m. the night before praying. And somewhere in the morning, between 3 and 6 a.m., he's out on the water walking to the disciples. Sounds like he might have been praying up on the mountain all night. Now let's take a quick sidetrack on prayer and take a look at another verse where Jesus is praying, Mark 1.35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In Matthew 14, we see Jesus up on the mountain 
praying after the sun went down and late into the night. Mark 1.35, we see Jesus getting up early before the sun even rose and going out to a desolate slash lonely place and praying there. The Bible says that Jesus is an example for us to follow. In his humanity, Jesus was a man of prayer. So I have a question, couple questions for you. Are you a man or a woman of prayer? What part of your day are you spending in prayer? Samuel Chadwick was an English preacher in the early 1900s. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. The devil fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Let's get back to the story, back to Matthew, verses 24 and 25. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So again, let's reset the scene. The boat is in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are having a hard time of it because the wind is against them. The time is the fourth watch somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. While Jesus was up on the mountain praying, possibly praying all night, they've been trying to navigate to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now keep in mind that at least four of the disciples were fishermen and at least three others had experienced fishing before they started to follow Jesus. Disciples have been out on the water for nine hours. The Sea of Galilee is not that big. It should have only taken about two hours to sail across. It's dark. It's windy. Stormy. And the waves are rough. And they've been out on the water for nine hours. Can you picture that? How do you think the disciples were feeling about that time? I know that I was pretty nervous trying to navigate through a line of thunderstorms. Have you felt nervous driving late at night for a long time in a nasty storm? The disciples are no doubt tired, nervous, and more than a little bit scared. Let's go back to verse 25 and read on. And in the fourth watch of the night... He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, 
truly, you're the Son of God. I have a question. Verse 25 says that Jesus came to them walking on the sea. It was still stormy weather when he did that. He'd been up on the mountain praying, possibly praying all night. There's a storm going on. He comes down to the shore. Why didn't Jesus calm the storm before walking out to catch up with the disciples? I mean, walking a great distance up and down waves with the wind whipping around you can't be very much fun. Why didn't he calm the storm first? Here's what I think. Jesus was demonstrating that he meets us in the midst of our storm. And this is the first of what I suggest are several takeaways from today's lesson. Number one, Jesus will meet you in the storm. Is there a storm in your life going on right now? Is there some relationship of yours that's in turmoil? Something not quite right between you and your spouse or between you and one or more of your children? between you and your brothers and sisters or your parents, your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues? Are you in some sort of financial distress? Are you or someone close to you experiencing a serious illness? Jesus will meet you in the midst of the storm. It's quite likely that Jesus won't make that storm go away all at once. He may at some point. But in the meantime, he will meet you in the storm. In verse 26, the disciples see Jesus walking on the water and think he's a ghost and they cry out in fear. Jesus says, take heart. Desire. Do not be afraid. How do you think the disciples are feeling, having been in the storm for nine hours, probably wondering, can it get any worse? And then, yep, it just got worse. There's a ghost. (laughs) And then they realize it's Jesus talking to them, saying, do not be afraid. The the Bible doesn't say how the disciples reacted when they heard Jesus' voice. I know how I would have reacted. Yes, Jesus is here. We're going to be okay. I mean, isn't that how you would have reacted? The storm is still going on. But now they know that Jesus is with them in the storm. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. A well-known favorite, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Did you note that it doesn't say, even though I run through the valley of the shadow of death? Or even though I'm teleported through the valley of the shadow of death? No. It says, even though I walk. And that seems to me to imply a sense of time in that particular storm. 
I wasn't teleported through that line of thunderstorms that I had to navigate through. And the disciples weren't teleported to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They were out on the water for nine hours in what should have been a two-hour journey, and they weren't even close to their destination. Is the storm that you're in right now taking a little while to navigate through? Does it seem like it will never end? You may be asking God, when will it end? Please make it end. I don't know when the storm in your life will end, but I know this. Jesus is with you. Verse 28, Peter says, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Are you tracking with that? The disciples are scared. The boat is being battered by waves. It's been that way for what seems like forever. They hear a voice. It's Jesus in the midst of the storm. He's walking on the water. Why did Peter say, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water? That's not what I would have said. I would have said, if it's you, Jesus, can you do that calming the storm thing again like you did a while back? You see, back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus was preaching the good news and healing people. Afterwards, he and the disciples get into a boat, head out into the Sea of Galilee. Guess what happens? Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, at that point in time, the disciples hadn't figured out that Jesus is God incarnate, the Messiah. So if I had been out on the boat, battered by the waves for nine hours, I would have been saying, Jesus, can you calm the storm right now? Seems like that'd be a pretty good thing to do. But this time, Jesus is not in the boat. He's out on the water. He's out on the water, walking on the water, in the midst of the storm. Peter says, tell me to be with you. Back to that question. Why did Peter call him to, ask Jesus to call him to himself? Maybe it's, maybe it's as simple as that. In the midst of the storm, Peter wanted to be with Jesus. In the midst of the storm, Peter wanted to do the things that Jesus does in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the storm that's in your life. Do you want to do the things that Jesus does? Then ask him for help. I'm sure many of you already have. Now move in the direction that he's calling you. Jesus says to Peter, come command. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. Now, Peter is a fisherman. He knows he can't walk on water. He's proven it a thousand times before, jumping out of the boat into the water. 
But Luke 18.27 says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Reminds me of this movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. How many of you have seen that movie? So remember at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, Indiana's in this cave, and he's looking for the Holy Grail. And his father's been shot. And Indiana has to find the Holy Grail and bring it back to his father so his father can drink of it and live. And now it's a movie. <clears throat> As he's navigating through the, through the cave, he comes to this opening, narrow opening, that opens into a bottomless chasm. And on the other side is a narrow opening that leads to the Holy Grail. It's too far to jump. And he doesn't have any grappling irons or hook to throw across and swing across. He hears his father call for help. He looks at the bottomless chasm. He opens this ancient book that he's been using to decipher the clues to find the Holy Grail. And on this particular part of the journey, it has a sketch of a knight walking on air. He hears his father call for help again. He looks at the bottomless chasm. He looks at the book, a sketch of a knight walking on air. He closes the book, closes his eyes, and steps out into the chasm onto a causeway that's been painted exactly like the chasm below so he can't see it. Okay, I know I just spoiled it for all of you who haven't watched the movie. The point is that Indiana had to take a step of faith when he knew it couldn't possibly work out. Peter (coughs) Peter has to take a step of faith out onto the water when he knew it was impossible. When you are faced with the storms in your life, there will come a point in time when you need to take a step of faith. You will need to move in the direction that God is calling you, even though you can't see how it will possibly work out. God, you're telling me that I need to get counseling? I don't want to do that. It's not going to be any good. God, you're telling me that I need to trust you? I thought I already had, and it hasn't been working out. God, you're you're telling me that I need to pray? I'm not very good at it. That brings us to the second takeaway. Knowing that Jesus is with you in the storm, take a step of faith and move in the direction that God is calling you, even if you can't see how it will possibly work out. I recommend when faced with a decision on what to do, you pray. You pray. Read the Bible. You get godly counsel and then move in the direction that God is calling you. But why can you take a step of faith when God is calling you? There are two reasons. The first is he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Psalms 103, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens or above the earth? You can't fathom it. 
and you can't fathom how much God loves you. We get a glimpse of how much God loves us in this next verse, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave you everything he had. He gave you himself. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. You can trust him. And the second reason that you can take a step of faith when God calls you is because when he calls you, he enables you. When he calls you, he equips you. When God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses was worried about being slow of speech and not very eloquent. And God said to him in Exodus 4.11, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I shall be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. When Gideon doubted God's call to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites, saying, but I'm the least of the least. God said to him in Judges 6.14, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? When God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, Jeremiah was worried that he's too young. God told him in Jeremiah 1, 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. So why can you take a step of faith in the midst of the storm when God calls you? Number one, because he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And number two, because when he calls you, he will equip you and he will enable you. Back to Matthew. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Can you imagine that? What a sense of exhilaration he must have had. I'm walking on water. I wonder what the guys back in the boat were thinking. Wait, what? No, Peter, don't do that. Are you crazy? Hey, watch out for this wave. Here comes a big one. Or were they saying, man, I wish I had the courage to ask God to call me to himself. And then the Bible says something very interesting in verse 30. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Reminds me when I was a cadet back at the Air Force Academy. I took a summer program called Airmanship 490. It's free fall. It's advertised as the only parachuting course in the world where your first jump as a student is solo. It's a very intense course, three weeks long. The first two weeks of the course, you're learning all about the parachute, uh, body control in air, uh, uh, all about the emergency procedures and how to do a, a parachute landing fall when you hit the ground. After two weeks of training, they take you up into the airplane, 10 cadets at a time, two-engine propeller aircraft. You climb up to 4,000 feet above the ground. And then one by one, you start jumping out. 
Actually, when it's your turn to jump, the jump master goes, you, stand in the door. You come over there and you stand in the door and the jump master gives you a slap on the butt and you jump out into the airstream. You're supposed to count to to 10 before you pull the ripcord. That first jump, I counted to 10 pretty fast. One, two, 10. (laughs) Actually, the first jump wasn't the hardest. It was the second jump. And why is that? Because when I was on the ground and picking up my chute and walking back to the terminal, I thought to myself, what did I just do? I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane. And I began to think about everything that could go wrong. Well, what happens if my lines get tangled on opening? Or what happens if there's a line over my chute? Or uh, one of the lines is broken? What happens if I have a tear in my chute? What happens if my chute doesn't open? And all the way back up to 4,000 feet above the ground, I was thinking of everything that could go wrong. The second jump was the hardest of the five jumps we had to do. Back to Matthew 14. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. Sounds like the first jump. And then it says he saw the wind. Sounds like the second jump. How do you see wind? You don't see wind. You see the effects of wind. What was Peter seeing? I think he was looking at the waves. I think he was getting splashed. I think he felt the wind whipping around him. And I think he began to think of all the things that could go wrong. And then what what does the Bible say? Peter became afraid. And then what, what happened? Jesus said he began to doubt. What did Peter doubt? Well, I know what I would have been doubting. I wonder if I can make it. These waves look a little rough. I really shouldn't be doing this. I should be back in the boat, safer there. I might, I might sink. This is crazy. I'm going to drown. That's what I would have been doubting. And what caused Peter to doubt? He took his eyes off Jesus, focused on his problem. And then he began to doubt that God could take care of him in the midst of the storm. When you're in the storm of life, you will have an opportunity to doubt God's ability to take care of you. Why can I say that? Because we are all opposed by an enemy. And that's what the enemy does. He sows seeds of doubt in your heart about God having your best interest and about his ability to take care of you in the storm. Go back and reread Genesis chapter 3 and look at Satan's strategy in causing the fall. Go back and reread Matthew 4 and look at Satan's strategy in tempting Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth takeaway. Don't get distracted by the schemes of the devil Or believe his lies that cause you to doubt God's goodness or his ability. 
Now, how can you be strong against the seeds of doubt being sown by the enemy in the midst of your storm? Hebrews 12, 1 and 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Two words that I want to highlight from this passage, looking and enduring. Looking has the context of securely fastening in place. Paul is literally saying, I want you to securely fasten or securely fix your gaze on Jesus. That sounds pretty easy to do if you're standing on the shore. A little harder to do if you're out on the boat being buffeted by the waves. It's a lot harder to do when you're out on the water, walking on the water, being tempted by an enemy who's sowing seeds of doubt in your heart. How do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Pray. Read your word. Get good fellowship. Move with courage and with faith. The word endurance is mentioned three times. Paul says to run the race with endurance. He says later that Jesus endured the cross and endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Endure means to remain firm under misfortune or suffering without yielding, even though it's difficult. Why do we, why do we have to endure in our Christian walk? Why did David have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Why were the disciples out on the water for nine hours? Why didn't Jesus come sooner? There may be a storm in your life, and you're asking the same question. When is this going to end? Why do I have to endure so long? I don't have a perfect answer to your question. James 1, though, offers some help. In verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's an illustration that may help. Pastor Jim has used it. When they're, when they're mining silver out of the mountain, they take these big rocks with silver in them and they bust them up into small rocks. And they put them into this big crucible kettle and they heat that kettle up to a high temperature. Things start to melt. And the silver, being greater in density, falls to the bottom. And the impurities rise to the top. And the silver refiner scrapes those impurities off, 
throws them away. And the process is repeated over and over again as the, heat, as the fire gets hotter and hotter, more impurities rise to the top. And the silver refiner takes those impurities off, he scrapes them off of the top and he throws them away. And how does the silver refiner know when he's done? When he looks at the molten silver and sees his reflection. Jesus is refining us. We are called to endure and not lose heart. He is our example. He's working in us. And that brings us to the fifth takeaway. Fix your eyes on Jesus and let your faith produce endurance. By the way, you're going to need help in keeping your eyes on Jesus and letting your faith produce endurance. You're going to need other brothers and sisters to help you along the way. Why? Because the enemy knows the weakest part of your armor and he knows how to send a flaming arrow into the weakest part of your armor at the worst possible moment. If you go it alone, you won't make it. You'll be taken out of the battle. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Hebrews 10.24 and 25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The sixth takeaway, you will need other brothers and sisters to help you. We all have storms in our life. How are you weathering the storm that's in your current life? How's your faith holding up? Are you tired? Are you scared? Are you wondering when it will be over? We can be encouraged even though we're in the midst of the storm. Isaiah 43, one through two says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. As you deal with the storms in your life, remember these things. Number one, Jesus will meet you in the storm. Number two, take a step of faith and move in the direction God is calling you, even if you can't see how it will possibly work out. Number three, why can you take a step of faith? Because he loves you more than you can possibly imagine, and he will equip you. He will enable you.
Number four, don't get distracted by the schemes of the devil or believe his lies. Number five, fix your eyes on Jesus and let your faith produce endurance. Number six, you will need other brothers and sisters to help you along the way. There may be some of you who have not put your faith in Jesus Christ as not only the one who walks with you in the midst of the storms on this earth, but the one who saves you from the wrath of a holy God when confronted by your sin in the day of final judgment. This world is passing away. And one day, each of us will be called to give an account of our lives before God. And those who have put their faith in Jesus will be given the righteousness of Christ and will be with Jesus forever where there is no storm, just peace and joy. And those who have trusted in their own self-righteousness will be separated from Jesus forever and put into a place called the lake of fire where the storm never ends. And neither does the weeping or agony. If you've never put your faith in Jesus for your eternal salvation, today would be a good day to do so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for meeting us in the storms of our life. Help us to take a step of faith and move in the direction you're calling us, even if we can't see how it will work out. Help us to securely fasten our eyes on you and let our faith produce endurance. Help us to fellowship with other brothers and sisters who will help us on the way. And for any who have not put their trust in you for their eternal salvation, I pray they would call out to you today to save them. In Jesus' name, amen.